Well, as you know, a couple months ago, or maybe just a month and a half, when we weren't able to have our fall uh, gathering time out at the Thompsons outdoors, we had a trivia night here, and that went over so well, we're going to plan on doing that again. So I thought, let's just start today with, with a trivia question, and then we'll have another question after that that's not quite as trivial. So here's a trivia question. How many babies have been born in human history? How many babies have been born in human history? Now, this is actually, I'm going to give you multiple choice here. This is from the uh, World Population Report. So I'm just going to trust their numbers because I don't have any way to correct it. So Bob, did you have a guess here? 35 billion. All right, anybody else? 78. 78 billion. Any other takers here? I was a little surprised because it's actually, according to them at least, 115 billion. Now, that's a lot of people. Here's more to the point. 115 billion babies, give or take a couple billion, right? 115 billion babies have been born in human history. That leads to the second question, which is not working. Second question being, what makes this one so special? Why are we, why are we, and over a billion people right now in this world, why are we, and perhaps one-fourth, almost one-fourth of the world's population, why are we celebrating right now the birth of one child out of 115 billion? Why have we divided our calendar on the basis of his birth? What is so special about this one child out of all those that have been born? There's a famous carol that asks someone along that same line, what child is this that lay to rest and Mary's lap is sleeping? Because he doesn't look like that much, if we're honest. He's, a, he's the, the poor child born of a, of a poor peasant family with, a, with straw as his bedding, laid in a feed trough, a manger. Could this really be the most important person in human history, the one whose birth we should all celebrate rightly? And if so, why? Well, as Ned and I were thinking about this sermon series for Advent, we decided to begin answering that question. We decided to say, how can we look beyond the manger? And maybe the best way for us right now is to understand who Jesus is as prophet and priest and king. That he is the prophet. He is the great prophet of God, the final word from him. He is the high priest, the, the, the one great mediator between God and man. And he is the final and ultimate king who will rule all things, perfect all things, and it will be, though, a rule of love and righteousness and justice. So we're going to look at this one and begin answering this question by looking at Jesus as the great prophet. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would make these what is needed for all of us, Lord, and that would be pleasing to you. Lord, on my best day, 
on my best day, I could never show anywhere close to the fullness of the glory of who you are, Jesus, in your coming for us. But we, uh, we're not reliant upon me. We are asking for reliance upon your spirit, both to direct my words, but also to direct the way that we receive them. Help this, God, to be a time where you speak to us about what it means that you are God's prophet to us, to me individually, and how we should respond. Thank you, Father. Amen. By the way, good to see Jordan and Mezzi here today. Uh, glad to have you guys. And the baby's in the nursery, right? All right, so we'll have to go. I was going to say we should all give her a group hug, but in the age of COVID, maybe we should not do that. But whatever. Glad to have you guys here. All right. I'm going to break this up into uh, basically just a couple parts about Jesus being the prophet, what that means. And then lastly, we're going to talk about what it should mean for us or how we should respond to that. So, first question first. When we talk about Jesus coming as the final prophet, first we want to, as Aristotle taught us, define our terms. What do we mean by a prophet anyway? When we say Jesus is the prophet, or anyone else that they are a prophet, what are we talking about? And we might have some vague idea in our mind, this is some kind of religious figure, maybe he wears robes, you know, or something, and, and often we have the idea that they're going to foretell the future. And that's not entirely wrong, but pretty close to wrong, uh, because a, a prophet is not about telling the future. That can be one part of what he does, but that's not really the essence. A prophet, if you want to boil it down to one word, a prophet is a mouth. A prophet is a mouth. A prophet is a person that God uses as a mouth to proclaim his message. And, and you, you see that in many places, but probably the clearest is here in Exodus, uh, when God gives Moses, who would become the great prophet, uh, this job assignment, Moses says, no, no, I can't do this, I don't speak well. And so what does God say to him? I, I mean, God, in his grace, he, he knows that Moses is able to do this through his power. But God, in his grace, in his condescension, says, all right, here's what we'll do. I will let Aaron be your prophet. I'll, you will be like God, and he'll be your prophet because you will speak words to him, and then he will speak to the Israelites and to Pharaoh himself. So let's get, just get this objection out of the way. Now, the reason I'm showing us that is because here in this, in this passage, you see very clearly what God understands the prophet's role is. God gives a message. The prophet is one who speaks it out as he directs it. The prophet is not one who says, you know, in my opinion, or what I learned is, what I think about this issue is, now those aren't bad phrases. I mean, as a pastor here, I'm not a prophet. I don't hear God speaking words to me like, like Moses did or anyone like that. So sometimes we have to say, you know, as I'm reading this, this is what it seems to me to say. But that's not what a prophet does. The prophet doesn't say, this is what I think, or this is my opinion. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. Because that is his role. He is to be, or, or sometimes she, the, the mouth of God, as it were. Now, <clears throat> that is what a prophet is. But we also note that um, all prophets pointed ahead towards Jesus. They pointed ahead towards Jesus. So a prophet had a role, but the role was more or 
more than just this one of being the mouth. In that role, they also pointed ahead towards Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, well, two things, and I'll show you a scripture here in a second. One, they pointed ahead towards Jesus in that he would be, he would be the final prophet, the final one who spoke God's truth, as we'll talk about here in just a second. So they, they were a symbol of that. But the second way they pointed ahead towards Jesus was that many of the prophecies, in, in fact, the most, the deepest prophecies, were about Jesus. So he was both the prophet to come and the one prophesied about. Let me, let me bring this out here a little bit. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is speaking to the people and he tells them this. The Lord himself will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. Now, in the context of Israel's history and, and kind of the flow of thought, this would not be just one prophet necessarily. This would probably be a whole series. So you've got Elijah and Elisha and then all the writing prophets. You've got you know, Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. All these fulfilled this in some way. But at the same time, by, by the, the grammar involved here, right at the beginning there was this idea that there would be also one prophet. So there would be a series of prophets, but there would also be one final special prophet, a man like Moses. And that's why in, in John chapter 6, when the people and the Pharisees come to Jesus saying, hey, who are you? What, what authority are you claiming to do the things you're doing? You know, one of the questions they ask, are you the prophet that was to come into the world? And that's what they asked of, uh, they asked of, that, of John the Baptist in, uh, in John, uh, John chapter 1. They asked him, are you the prophet who is to come? So there were prophets, and then there was the prophet that was to come. And that was understood in the, in, the, in the mindset and the expectation of the people. So, then we see this. After the death of Jesus, Peter stands up. This is a, right after the day of Pentecost, not during it. And, and he speaks to the people. He foretold through the prophets, saying all that his Messiah would suffer. So again, the prophets are pointing ahead to towards Jesus because he fulfills the prophecy. But more than that, he says, he quotes this scripture about Jesus. The one says that Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he says. And then, uh, by the way, in Acts 7, uh, Stephen echoes the same quote, applying it to Jesus. So in the New Testament writers, they're understanding that Jesus was not just a prophet, but he was the prophet that Moses was prophesying and talking about. Now, what does that mean in particular? Well, it means that Jesus fully revealed God's truth and God's word to us. God's, Jesus fully revealed God's truth and God's word to us. In fact, uh, the book of Matthew especially take pains, takes pains to underscore that Jesus is the new Moses, as a, in a sense. The one that Moses prophesied and pointed towards, but also the one greater than Moses. How does it do that? Well, in some, in some ways, just by its very structure. So you'll see in the book of Matthew, there are five great blocks of teaching of Jesus. Each one, two to three to four chapters long. First one is in uh, Matthew 5. 6 and 7, which we call, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And many scholars have noted that this seems to be a parallel with the five books of Moses, 
the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, um, and then especially you begin to see other ways uh, that Jesus fulfilled this role. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, it says he goes up the mountain, sat down, and taught the people. Now, what other person, what other prophet spoke from the mount, speaking God's words to the people? Moses, right? So there seems to be a very conscious effort on Matthew's part, guided by the Holy Spirit, to understand that Jesus comes in the likeness of Moses to fulfill Moses. And then when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it said, for example, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who has this anger in their heart, there's an inward murder already going on there. So what's he doing? Well, he's taking the word of Moses and he is internalizing it and he is intensifying it, partly to show the true meaning of that, partly to show through the true meaning of that how deeply we fail and how much we need him. Now, if you go on to Matthew 5, not every part of you have heard it said came directly from Moses. Moses never said you should, well, he did say you should love your enemies, but Moses never said you should, or did say you should love your neighbors, but he never said you should uh, hate your enemies. Getting that right. But that's how people were interpreting Moses at that time. So he comes as the true prophet of God. I liked this passage especially here. Well, these passages here. Jesus came to, to teach all the manner of God's truth. And over and over again, you just see here, these are just a few of the passages we can quote, especially from the Gospel of John. Jesus goes out of his way to say, look, I am not speaking my own ideas. I am speaking the very words of God. My teaching is not my own. It comes from God. I am the mouth that's bringing it forth to you. He says that over and over again in different ways and in different contexts. So, one last passage here before we go into the second part, that he's more than a prophet. We see this. John chapter 1. We're going to look at this a little bit more, more fully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why is Jesus called the word here? In the Greek word is logos. It can mean word or revelation or idea or even logic. Uh, but I think they're right in translating it as word here, English translations. Because I, it seems to me the idea he's trying to get across is that Jesus is this word of God, this revelation of God to us. And I, I, this phrase here, The word became flesh. And then verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here, here again you see the contrast. Moses brought the law, but Moses gave the law, but Jesus came with this grace and truth. And I think then that that kind of helps us understand what he means by it's kind of uh, an unusual phrase, grace upon grace already given. And I, I think in the context, what he means is this. The law was grace. The law that Moses brought showed who God was, showed what God desired, showed the right way to live. That was an act of grace. 
So in one sense, we can't oppose law and grace absolutely. It, it, this was an act of God's goodness to give the law, but there is a grace that goes far beyond that. The grace of Jesus Christ, full of, of grace and truth that he brought, grace in place of the grace already given. So that is the idea. He comes as the prophet. He comes in the likeness of Moses, but he is greater than Moses because he's the one that Moses pointed to. He is the prophet of God. That's the first reason that he is special. But the second is this. Jesus always goes beyond. He always went beyond people's understanding of him in his lifetime there in Israel, and he still does. So Jesus came as more than a prophet. Is he a prophet? Yes. But he's also at the same time more than a prophet. Why? Well, unlike any of the prophets who came before, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that's brought out here, right? The word was with God, so there is not an absolute identity of Jesus with the Father, but at the same time, the word was God. And, and this is the, 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 the great mystery. Jesus was with God. Jesus or is, is with God. Jesus is God. But also Jesus came in human flesh. The Word became flesh. Uh, and that's where we get that phrase, the Word was incarnated and dwelt among us. And that word there is a verbal form of what you would, in the Greek language, you would refer to the Old Testament tabernacle. The word tabernacled among us. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. All the other prophets spoke for God. Jesus speaks as God. He is the one we're told here. No one has ever seen God. Even Moses. Moses saw maybe the afterglow, you might want to call it. But the one and only Son, who is, in, who is himself God, and is in closer relationship with the Father, I think some translations put it at the Father's side, has made him known. So he comes as a prophet, not only to reveal God's word, but to show, fully show who God is. So, fully God and fully man, in that role, he is the one who fully speaks God's truth to us. There are a lot of people who claim to speak for God. There are a lot of people who have spoken for God, truly, right? There are many, many people in the Old Testament, and many people probably not, in recorded history, that have truly spoken for God. But there is one final and complete and definitive revelation from God, and that's Jesus Christ himself. I'll show you a great passage here. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke through our forefathers, through the prophets, and many times in various ways. And that's true. He spoke through many people in different ways, dreams and visions, words. But in these last days, the time after the cross, in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he appointed the universe. He goes on to say the Son is the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is more than a prophet 
because he is the one all the prophets point to, and as fully God as well as fully man, he is the one who fully and finally and definitively speaks God's truth to us. Now, I call him the final prophet. Not in the sense that God cannot speak through other people in a prophetic way ever again after, after Jesus. He certainly does that in the New Testament, before the New Testament was, was finished. And I, he can do that again today. God's not bound by my expectations of what, whether people prophesy today or not. But if this word is true, he is the final prophet in the sense that he is the final word. And everything else is interpreted by him and what he says. So, I have in my hands here a copy of the Constitution of the United States. And the reason I do this is because this is intended to be the final and definitive word about how our government and how our laws should operate. And there are nine men and women in, in Washington, D.C. who sit on a court, and their goal is to interpret this and apply it in different scenarios. So a state makes a law or a lower court makes a decision, and it comes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, basically, they're not asking, okay, do they like this decision or not? At least that's not what they're supposed to do, right? These are men and women, not angels, so they're not always going to get it right. But their role is to look at this document, these words on this paper, and say, does this law, does this ruling line up with this or not? If not, we're going to throw it out. If it does, then yes, it will stand. What I'm saying is that Jesus, as the full revealer of God, he is the only one who has that final authority and say about everything. If I say something, if I say something that is not in a line with what Jesus says, I'm wrong. If anyone says anything against what he teaches or applies through his words, then we need to reject that as a rule for our life. We'll come back to that idea here in the end. All right. Last part of this, of this that he came as more than a prophet, and then we'll begin to apply this. He is the one who fully reveals God to us. He not only fully speaks God's truth, he fully reveals God's face. When you saw Elijah, when you saw Moses, or you saw Isaiah, you saw a servant of God. But when you look at Jesus, you see God himself. Hebrews, again, the same passage. He is the exact, uh, the radius of God's being, the exact representation of who he is. Colossians 1 he is the image of the invisible God. God in himself does not have a body, right? He's not made of matter. He made matter. How do we know this God? How do we know this God? We, we may have his words, but how do we know what he's really like? When you look at Jesus, you see that answer. He is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Martin Luther said, if you had a crucifix here in your hand, you know, Jesus on the cross, what you would have is a, a wooden image of God, but Jesus is a Godden image of God. He is an image of God made of God himself is the idea. Jesus is the one who fully shows the heart of God the one who fully reveals God to us. So Jesus came as the final prophet. He came as the prophet who fulfilled all this. He came as the one who is more than a prophet. 
the one fully God and fully man, who speaks God's truth to us and reveals God's face to us, God's heart to us, as it were. All right, so here's the, I said there was one more question, and here's where we're going to end. What should we do about that? <laughs> How should we respond to the fact that Jesus is the great prophet of God? Let's not just stick this up here in our mind. Okay, we know a little bit more about Jesus. Let's begin to think, all right, if I am celebrating this Jesus as Lord over my life, then what does it mean that he is the full prophet of God to me? I would suggest a couple things. First, listen to him. Listen to him. That is what Moses said, there will arise a prophet like me. Listen to him. When Jesus was baptized, as the voice of the Father came down, this is my son whom I, in whom I delight. Listen to him. Now, you might say, well, I've got this down. You know, I come to church, read the Bible sometimes. I'm listening. But are we really? I ask myself a hard question. I'm going to ask it of you as well. How many hours this last week did you spend listening to the final prophet of God? How many hours this week did you spend listening to the final prophet of God? If you really want to get convicted, keep track of how many hours you listen to the final prophet of God versus how many hours we listen to the voices of this world, especially the ones coming through screens, right? Listening to him means that we make a decided effort to engage in the words that he spoke. And I could think of no better way to truly celebrate this as an Advent season than to spend this next month focusing in on listening to the words of this child who came. I, uh, I came across a good tool. I actually just got it a couple days ago because uh, I guess it was the Black Friday sale. The ESV Bible is published by Crossway Books, and Crossway has a set of uh, what's called New Testament Illuminated Journal Bibles. And what they mean by that is they have a set of New Testament books where each one is its own volume, as it were. So this is the Gospel of John. And in this case, it has very beautiful print. And then on the left side, over here, or right side, I guess it is, um, there is space for you to write your response, your thoughts, your questions. And, and you've kind of done that a little bit. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out, I don't get a commission from Crossway Books or anything, but normally that set, the whole New Testament set, so you've got one of the, all these. I think like the, gospel, the Epistles of John, they all put in one or something. So there's over 20 volumes, um, not all 27, but... In any case, normally that's 100 bucks, and I got it for 40 bucks. I think that's still going on on Amazon.com. And why am I bringing that about? Well, because one of the things I'm going to do this, this Advent season is take one of the Gospels, and I'm going to devote myself to reading that again and again. And the reason why it's cool to have it this way is because it reminds us that this is the way the Gospel was written. This is the way the Bible was written. The Bible didn't come down as a you know this big book from the sky. No, people over time, inspired by the Spirit, wrote down a book. And the best way to understand it is to read this book 
several times in its fullness again and again, rather than looking to it here and there for verses here and there, and then going to someplace else. I want to encourage you, you can do this, of course, without this, without this particular tool, um, but you can get these volumes for less than 10 bucks, a whole set for 40 of the New Testament, and do the same thing with the Old Testament, they make an Old Testament set. This is a good way to take in the words of Jesus, to hear them afresh in one book that I'm reading again and again. All right, first, listen to him. Second, interpret your life through him. Interpret your life through him. Now, now what do I mean by this? One of the things that we hopefully learn as adults is that the events of our lives are facts without interpretation. We give them interpretation. The question is whether we're giving them the right interpretation or not. Let me give you an example. I saw in the paper this week that um, two women in Franklin won $5 million in the Hoosier lottery. Uh, it, was, it was weird because I knew one of, the, one of the girls actually used to go to youth group here. Not very often she didn't come to church, but she came with a friend or two. Um, and, uh, and so I was kind of intrigued by that. But let me ask you this, though. The fact is they received $2.5 million apiece, minus whatever taxes the government's going to take out of that. Is that a good thing? That's the fact. But what's the interpretation of that? Is that a sign that their life is blessed? Is that a sign that, uh, that this is a wonderful thing that's happened to them? Well, most of us would certainly think so. I mean, right? How many of us, if someone offered us a check for two and a half million, would say, no thanks, I'm good. Uh, so normally we would think that. But then, what does the prophet of God, the final word, say about that? Quote, a person's life does not consist in the things they possess. Quote, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He viewed wealth as spiritually dangerous. Not that it was entirely bad, but it's dangerous. It may be the worst thing in their, in their lives that these women received that. It may be a good thing. What I'm saying is, without an interpretation, the facts by themselves don't mean anything. And what we have to do, the challenge for us again and again, is not only to hear this word, but then to interpret the facts of our life through that. We, uh, we normally avoid persecution. But Jesus said in, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you if you're persecuted, at least for my sake, not for your own faults, but for righteousness' sake. Our world has a very lacks view of, of sexual freedom and, and, and lust. In fact, they often celebrate it. But what does Jesus say? Again, in Matthew chapter 5. If you look at a person lustfully in your heart, there's already a spiritual adultery that's going on. And then it goes on right after that. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out, throw it away from you. He takes it very seriously. Do we, though? Are we willing to cut out the things of our life that might lead us to lust or to other kinds of sin? The world celebrates revenge. Why? Well, partly because it feels good. 
partly because if I get revenge on someone enough, they're not going to mess with me anymore. I've heard that worldly advice from very worldly people. What does Jesus say? Don't repay an evil person harm for what they've done to you. But instead, when they strike you on the cheek, which was, this was not a, this is not a self-defense issue, this is a, an insult issue. If you slap someone on the cheek, in that culture, it was, it was the equivalent of flipping them the bird, but also with a little physical pain mixed in, all right? So it was a, a very grievous insult. What's Jesus say? Turn to them the other cheek as well. You see, the words of Jesus, the words of the final prophet, and what he says about the meanings and what we should do in life are not the same as the world's. And we're going to have to make a concerted effort to listen to this, to get engaged with this, and then to interpret what we do and what we value through this. I was at a, Amy and I were at some friend's house the other night. These were not church people. Uh, these were some neighborhood people. And they began, these women began talking about Taylor Swift. And one of them mentioned, uh, they were big fans, that out of the 100 top Billboard songs right now, 26 were from Taylor Swift. Uh, which I found amazing. Uh, I didn't check, fact check that, but that's what she said. But here's what, here's what became clear to me. These women were fully engaged, and they knew they could, they could talk about the lyrics of Taylor Swift songs all day long. And I wondered later, could they do the same with the final prophet of God? Or more to the point, now I'm not picking on Taylor Swift. I know almost nothing about her. I know what she looks like. I know she's famous. Uh, she seems very talented. My, but here's a question that came in my mind. If Taylor Swift endorsed one idea, one activity, one ethic, and Jesus endorsed the opposite way, who would they listen to? And that's a question for all of us. We may not be Taylor Swift fans, but we have to engage ourselves and interpret what the world says to us by this and not the other way around. Taylor Swift is not the final prophet of God. Fox News is not the final prophet of God. Some celebrity, whether it's a business person or a movie star or an entertainer or an athlete, they do not have the final say in our lives if we're followers of Jesus Christ. He does. This is what we should do to interpret our lives and also what we do. And then finally here, This also means that we interpret not just our values, what we do, but also the sufferings and struggles of this life. You see, we are all going to have things in our life that cause us great, great pain. And the question is, how do we interpret the meaning of that? Suffering is a fact. The amount of suffering we go through will vary. But Jesus has told us, in this world, you will have troubles. But what's he say right after that? But take heart. I have overcome the world. So a Christian who is learning to listen to Jesus as the final arbiter of all the things and meanings of life, is able to acknowledge the hurt without losing their faith because they understand that Jesus modeled, modeled faithfulness through suffering, but also taught it. 
In fact, he said, again, Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The hungrier you are, the better the food feels. And the more we understand that this world has ugliness and pain and injustice, the more we will be comforted when those things are redeemed and made right. This is what I take it to mean, that Jesus came as prophet, priest, and king, the final prophet of God, the one who came as a prophet and more than a prophet. We should listen to him. We should interpret our life through him. He is the final word of God to us.